0: the juxtaposition that occurs between these characters being just ridiculously funny just <laughs> wildly weird doing just things that make no sense or 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 seem just so over the top comedic and then the next moment accessing some some kind of insightful odd commentary No Script listeners, welcome back. This is No Script, the podcast, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen.
1: And I am Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning in to another show with us.
0: That's right. We have returned. It is not unexpected. I hope there's no like shock of revelation on your part. Like they're back from the right. ashes because there were no ashes. This is a <laughs> no weekly ashes. show. We're back for another week. Yep. This should be expected on your part. Any shock you're feeling is your fault, right? And not ours. That was a little harsh. I, you That's know, a little, little, little. We probably, we probably shouldn't but... chastise the listeners in the opening at part of the episode. As a, as a rule.
1: Just, yeah, as a rule.
0: Hey, segue <laughs> to know, the play for I, this week. I did not intend to make that pun, but now I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> yes, so Sarah Rule is the playwright that we are returning to for this episode. We noted as we were preparing and setting up our recording equipment and such that this is our third Sarah Rule play in three seasons. yeah. That's like the
1: most, cons- almost the most consistent we've had. It's tied. We said, I think Lynn Nottage is the only other one that we have done this many plays by.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, we obviously we did Miller Month, which was four Arthur Miller episodes. But if you set aside that uh, sort of abnormal uh, pattern or frequency, right, that was just all in one month, doing a playwright every season is not something we do very frequently. So, Sarah yeah. Rule, congratulations. You've made your third appearance <laughs> on No Script. Yes, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> you're watching and
1: listening rapidly. I'm going to so. edit her
0: Wikipedia page right now and put right. in, she is one of the few playwrights who has had three <laughs> separate appearances on No Scripted to Podcast. <laughs>
1: Three-time appearance.
0: <laughs> well done, Sarah Rule. Today we're talking about your play, Dead Man's Cell Phone.
1: Yes, Dead Man's Cell Phone. And actually, this was a brand new play to me. I had never uh, read this one before reading it for this podcast, so I'm excited to kind of deal with a completely new script to me.
0: Yeah, th- this play has always been in the upper echelon of Rule scripts to me. I got to see it, I think it might have been last year, although to the local folks who I might be offending if, I, if I'm if i saying that wrong, I apologize, I don't quite remember when it was. But I did see this show at one of the theaters in our region, the Arkansas Public Theater, and a wonderful production. Some dear friends of mine were in it, and it was uh, funny and touching as all Sarah Rule plays strive to be. So a really, really wonderful time. I'm excited to talk about the script.
1: Yes, but before we jump into talking about the play, I- do want to take just a second and refer you over to our Patreon page? Those of you who are longtime listeners of the show know that we have a Patreon page, and know that though if you if you like our Facebook posts and 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 Instagram posts and Twitter, that's a great way to support the show. And listening every week is a great way to support the show. If you want to take the extra step though to support the show, check out our Patreon page. It is Patreon.com/slash script Podcast. We have a number of different tiers over there of membership. We will give you. Producer credit at at some point along the way. So if you have a second, check us out at NoScript. Ah, at patreon.com slash no script podcast and uh, there's and yeah just check it out over there we there's the lowest tier is like one dollar a month and it helps us out enormously at that one dollar a month level uh, it, it, it is disproportionate to the number is what it helps it out, out because there's fees and uh, script costs and stuff like that associated with this while we love doing the show and it's a passion project for us it is not free so check us out over there help us out a little bit and we will see you on patreon.com slash podcast.
0: We'll see you over there. Thanks for your support in advance.
1: Yeah, now, yeah. back to the script. Back to the script. What's some context for us?
0: Dead Man's Cell Phone by Sarah Rule, as we have said. The play is not that old in terms of the scope of scripts that we do on this show. It was premiered at the Woolly Mammoth Theater Company out of D.C. in 2007. That's not the first time we've said a play is premiered there. If you're a longtime listener, you might start to recognize some of these theaters that we mentioned as premiering scripts. Woolly Mammoth is a wonderful theater out of D.C. So 2007, this show premiered... It, the world premiere apparently was nominated for all kinds of Helen Hayes Awards. Uh, eventually it did win script writing Helen Hayes Awards. Then it premiered off-Broadway at the Playwrights Horizon Theater in 2008. That production starred Mary Louise Parker, which is exciting, but even more <laughs> exciting for me as a director is that that production was directed by Anne Bogart, who's an incredible director. She's the author who wrote um, uh, Director Prepares, that famous directing script. She also does a lot of work with Viewpoint, She's out of Columbia, a director that I just love, love, love. So it's exciting to see her name come through, premiering this script off-Broadway, that 2008. It's regularly produced around the country, eminently producible, community theater producible. Really, really great script for that. So, you know, I saw one at a local theater in my area. There's a good chance that in your area, depending on where you are, there's a production of Dead Man's Cell Phone going on. So if you have the chance, go see it.
1: I just love how, how producible this play is. It's, it's a very simple, you know, setting, good, good, uh, diversity of characters and, and good magic in it too. Like good kind of, uh, I'm sure we'll get into what we're, what we're talking about, but there's just enough magic in this play for a small community theater to pull off or a big house to pull off. Like, it, it rides that line really, really well. So, before we jump into that, I do want to summarize the script for you. We like to give you a, a brief summary of what's going on, if you haven't read the script. Uh, this script rotates around the character of Jean, who uh, is described in the character descriptions as a woman, Jean. Um, (laughs) and, uh, and it's, and, and she kind of matches that. She's just a, a woman who happens to be in a diner at the same time as a man dies. Um, the man's name is Gordon and he's dead in the first scene. Um, and, and what happens is she discovers that he's dead and crucially, She answers his cell phone. And that choice sets off a series of motions or uh, actions and effects that carry out through the rest of the show. We meet uh, Gordon, the dead man's uh, mother and wife. His mother's name is Mrs. Gottlieb, is how I'm going to uh, pronounce that. It's a very German name. And his wife's name is Hermia. We meet his brother, Dwight. And then we meet two other people who were in Gordon's life as well. Um, One is just named The Other Woman. And then the other one is The Stranger, both played by the same actress, but I believe different people. Um, So these people are all uh, these they're, they're all connected to Gordon and Gene, through Gordon's cell phone, meets all of them. That's that's kind of <laughs> the big meta summary of the script is is that she goes and she has dinner with his family. She meets uh, the other woman uh, and has a conversation with her before dinner with the family. And uh, she makes friends with a number of people in the family. She falls in love, kind of, with one of the, a member of the family, and then goes off to another country and meets uh, the stranger in the other country. So. All sorts of fun uh, twists and turns develop, but all of it is focused on that crucial moment of picking up Gordon's cell phone and deciding to answer it.
0: Right, and actually we that scene or that, at least the setting of that moment is so crucial that it's played over a couple of times in different formats and with different maybe contexts surrounding it. But we get that initial scene with Jean in the diner, uh, really iconic thing. She's sitting there finishing her soup or drinking her coffee or whatever and this, the phone starts to go off and continues to go off and she's telling this what she thinks is just a... Uh, Person not paying attention. Hey, please turn your phone off. Hello, hello, hello. Finally, she just answers the phone and then, in the middle of the call, discovers that he's dead. Well, then later in the script, we return to that scene from Gordon's point of view. Yes, we return to the scene of the dead man from the dead man's point of view. (laughs) It's a Sarah rule play. That's just pretty much par for the course. Uh And then later on, we return to that scene in memory or in maybe sort of soundscape as Gordon and Gene both together are in the diner they're the hell version of diner, the the afterlife version of the diner kind of reliving the events of the, of that moment again.
1: Yeah. The, this plague just like kind of, Bounces through Etherea um, as 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 uh, we meet different characters along the way. Specifically, when we're dealing with Gordon, who um, while I, I don't think is the main character of the play, certainly provides the through line for a lot of this play. Um, he's he's the the tie that kind of knits all the interactions together. And it is kind of cool to see that scene from three very different perspectives, with much more information throughout the play as well. Because this play also also holds on to pretty crucial plot elements until much later into the play.
0: Right. One of the things that occurs if there's if there's a continuous plot line to follow rather than just sort of a sequence of events that happen because she found this phone, if there's a journey, one of the journeys is discovering who Gordon was, that she managed to pick up the cell phone of this dead guy, no idea who he is. He's a stranger to her. And one of the things that occurs throughout the play is that she discovers who this man was. Some of it she is forced to discover after. As she rolls along, there's a wonderful, wonderful sequence of lines when she is at dinner with Gordon's family. There's already some stuff has happened to get her there, but she's there. Still doesn't really know that much about Gordon. So the family says, well, how did you know Gordon? And she, no idea. She's a stranger, but she's pretending not to be a stranger. So she says, uh, work. Work and they say oh well gordon's work well that you know that's that was a, that's a dark business that was that's tough and she's kind of spitballing to to keep up with the conversation <laughs> and they eventually say were you in outgoing or incoming she just has to make it up. In, well, I was an incoming, I guess. And that yep. becomes kind of a crucial uh, understanding that other characters have of her for the rest of the play. That she was an incoming at whatever yep. Gordon's work is. And we don't discover what Gordon's work actually was and what it means to be an incoming <laughs> for yeah. a while yet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, there, there's just some kind of brilliant lying that happens, and actually, uh, rule makes the distinction to not use the word lying, and I just broke the rule right there. Um, but uh, it, it's she, she kind of goes into these situations and makes up different things. I think rule in in my like director's note at the back says, uh, "I call Jean's stories confabulations. I never call them lies," and. <laughs> They're not truths, um, but she she kind of <laughs> just rolls into these interactions and just
0: makes up stuff. And-, and especially makes up stuff about Gordon and Gordon's last moments. Yeah. Yep. If there is a if there's a scene that reveals the most, maybe, or maybe the crucial bit of information about what in the world Gene is doing, why she is here, what the ...point of all this actually is, it's scene two of act one. After she's found the dead man's cell phone, and the the police have arrived, I guess, and the ambulance has arrived, whatever, scene two is the funeral for Gordon. And it starts off with Jean basically kneeling and praying... And she asks God that she might be a comfort. She says, help me to comfort his loved ones. Help me to help the memory of Gordon live on in the minds and hearts of his loved ones.
1: It's it's almost like she is referred to a number of times by other characters, uh, mostly Gordon, I think, um, but possibly uh, Mrs. Gottlieb as well as this, like, angel character. Like, she's referred to as, like, looking like an angel. And and that mission is almost like a, like a Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> level prayer of, like, let me be of help to these people. This random person decides to steal some guy's cell phone and just help all the people who call mourn and remember the guy who died. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, I mean, and she does it to return to where we were before by lying or, yeah. uh, as Sarah Rue likes to say, by confabulating. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. She just makes up stories about Gordon's last moment with nearly everybody she meets. The first person of the, the family that she actually meets face to face, if you don't count the fact that both the mother and her were in the room for the funeral. But when she actually has a dedicated one-on-one meeting, it's the other woman, Gordon's mistress, the other woman. And she basically says, well, in his last moments, Gordon said he loved you. You were the only person he ever loved. That When you walked into the room, you made his heart shudder. And, of course, none of this ever happened. Remember that Gene just found him dead. But she makes up this wild story about how Gordon said he loved her in his last moments. And that this provides some deep, profound comfort to this woman. And really alters her outlook and and, and and moves her profoundly. She does this again with the wife that he wrote her a letter in his dying moments. It's <laughs> it, it's this drawn out, beautiful, basically final love letter about how they were distant. But they finally, you know, they, they had these moments of connection. And he, he always loved her all along. And, and by Jean lying that she read this letter and quoting it to... Gordon's wife, Hermia, the stage directions call for Hermia's outlook on, like, 10 years of marriage to be drastically altered in this moment. Yeah. By a lie! By a confabulation! (laughs) By an untruth! Yep. And boy, she's, like,
1: completely completely calm about it too like the scene that you just uh, mentioned uh, she, she launches into this uh really beautiful paragraph after saying oh so i w- when gordon had died i saw scraps of a bunch of different letters that he wrote on some napkins and uh and he he wrote to you in his last moments and hermia says something like oh do you do you have the letter and she's like no but i can sum it up and then beautiful paragraph ensues <laughs>
0: Yeah, but she's just it's, yeah. Like I, I got a glimpse of one, and then quotes <laughs> right. this perfect love letter. And yep. uh, earlier in the play, she's visiting Gordon's mother for the first time, and she says, "Oh no, he tried to call you as he was dying. You wanted, he, want, he wanted, he wanted you to be the last person that he talked to before he died." And she says, "Really? Let me see the phone. Let me see." Oh, well, I accidentally deleted it. The mystical,
1: sorry, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the other one that's in that family scene is she gives them all gifts.
0: Oh, yeah, and the gifts. It's
1: just such a great little scene because – we as the audience are watching is like, oh, oh, oh no, you're, 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 you're messing up. Like, don't, don't get carried away with this, this, this well, track. It's,
0: it's almost like a scene from Friends or something. Like, yeah. you can um, sort of imagine a scene where somebody, like a Friends sitcom type character was supposed to get gifts for the group and forgot. And so they like grabbed gifts from the coffee shop right. and brought, because what she brings is a salt shaker. and a cup, and a spoon. And, I mean, that fits her story, and that's why it doesn't become sort of sitcom-level hilarious. She manages to turn these not-gifts into these sort of touching remembrances that Gordon was supposedly giving his family in his last moments. Of course you know, the fact that these characters believe her at all right. is part of the wild comedy of the thing. That its <laughs> I mean, it's so clear, even though, I mean, as the audience, we have the, we have the knowledge that didn't really happen, but it's so clear that she's making this kind of stuff up. Uh, Gordon, in his last moments having a heart attack, is not picking out specific items <laughs> from the coffee shop. Give these to my family, right. the salt, <laughs> because my wife was the salt of the earth. I mean, that, that's not happening but yeah. the characters around jean accept her confabulation with uh, little to no question.
1: Yeah, yeah, they yeah, with with the exception of the last gift that she gives to the mother, she doesn't question it, but it doesn't work in her favor all that much <laughs> cuz she gives her I think it's the spoon and says like cuz he always loved your cooking <laughs> as a child. <laughs> And she, like, stands up and says, or <laughs> she said, how could he be so insulting in the last moments? And she's like, no, he really liked your cooking. He was being serious. And she's like, there's no way he could have been being serious and storms out of the room. <laughs> so, assumedly, some sort of history is
0: there. Right, yeah. And and it's it's sort of a question, too, about where... Did Jean think this actually – this whole gift scene through enough that she brought all this stuff with her? I guess we're meant to infer that. Why would she have a salt shaker in her pack otherwise? But if she did, why didn't she come up with better reasoning? Salt because you're the salt of the earth. Cups because you can put stuff in you and you won't drop it. Spoon because of your cooking. I mean you sort of (laughs) wonder like you could probably get to come up with something better.
1: Yep. (laughs) But she doesn't.
0: And and it, you know, as you say, it doesn't ultimately really work out for her in terms of winning the mother's trust and favor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But but for the for the most part, she gets to she pretty much pulls it off, yeah. Like she even like really gets in good with the family, especially with Dwight.
0: Right, yeah. You know, the, the, the other through line for her, besides learning more about Gordon as she goes, is that in meeting the family of Gordon, she meets Dwight's brother, and her and Dwight begin a relationship. A really cute, touching, just mm. kind of uh, pure joy relationship that's just, just a lovely, lovely part of the script. Mm-hmm. All the way to the
1: end too. Like it, it, it is the final moment of the script. Is their kind of poignant, uh, a poignant moment in their relationship, and it just never, never stops being all ooey gooey and
0: nice. <laughs> yeah, well, they don't know each other for that long, but right. they they fall in love, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. or so they claim. And it, you know, the idea of finding. The, that connection point, that real, true connection point in the midst of uh, uh, confabulation, right, is part of what the script is dealing in. Is this idea of what grief can lead us to or, or what our, our attempts to be a comfort can lead us to. What, what kind of renewal can occur in the aftermath of this kind of event?
1: And I think it also has some some uh, kind of social commentary on on tying into all that. Like, how do we how do we be present to these moments? How do we have these touch points when we're never alone? When we always have like the cell phone with us? I think part of it is just straight up talking about that. There's a couple of monologues where uh, both Gene and Gordon talk about how how uh, insensitive and and lack of privacy, how, 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 how little privacy we have in the, in the phones around you all the time age of like overhearing other people's conversations. And they're all really private conversations and you're, it's hard to find those moments where some clarity or, or touching moments can happen in them.
0: Right, and Rule does a really, really clever job of juxtaposing the world of the cell phone, which is this world in which connections are being made from from stranger to stranger – gene to all of the strangers in Gordon's contact list. This world of digital connection, the kind of infinite possibility that something like a cell phone presents with the touching human connections that make the bulwark of this play. These moments where she gets to witness a family's grief, gets to be there in comfort, gets to find and fall in love, gets to help someone recover from the grief of losing a spouse, the grief of losing a son. Things like that they they end up kind of this back and forth of what 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 the technological marvel of a cell phone is the consequence of that technological marvel and then the pure reality of real human connection outside of the cell phone mhm
1: yeah and like the the navigating between life and death to find that almost
0: <laughs> like well, definitely she goes, yeah <laughs>
1: she goes on a journey through death to figure that out And there's
0: a the the cell phone commentary is really well done. It happens a number of different times throughout the script. One of, I think, the most memorable is in scene two. Gordon's mother is giving her (laughs) basically eulogy at, at Gordon's funeral. And cell phones start going off. And she ends up sort of on a rant about how nowhere is sacred anymore. It used to be that there were places where you didn't bring your cell phone. The theater, church, the bathroom. But then she, there's this just hilarious moment. She looks out over the attendees, and I would assume into the audience as well, and says, yep. but people are answering the phone on the toilet even much now. How many of you have done that? And then she just says something like, that's what I thought. <laughs> My God. <laughs> And just all of the blood-curdling disapproval comes through in waves in that Mm -hmm. just really, really funny small moment of commentary to introduce us into some of those longer monologues like you talked about.
1: Yeah, and there there are a number of of those. There's a, a decent one from Gene uh, in, in at the end of the first act, but then Gordon has a pretty long monologue to start off the second act, and it and it includes a a, a brief commentary on just overhearing stuff on the subway. He has a a really fun monologue about travel as well in there. He's talking about how. When we travel, we we were meant to travel at a slower pace, but uh, on the subway or in airplanes, we're traveling faster than our soul. A, a very a very rule thing to say, but uh, <laughs> but but and so a bunch of people are wandering around in the subway and in airports, waiting for their souls to catch up, and you can tell. Um, but all of that is kind of connected to him walking amongst people so tight that like other umbrellas can cov- other people's umbrellas can cover him and overhearing their conversations on the day that he died
0: Right. Gordon's monologue is the top of act two. The bottom of act one is Gene and Dwight together in sort of the, I, I would think, the kind of lusty aftermath of falling in love in this <laughs> stationary shop, and she's answering the phone and all that. There's a great moment where, you're, if, as long as you're not double casting Gordon and Dwight, uh, Gordon is supposed to walk on stage and almost say something, and then the lights go out for intermission. And when the lights come back up, it's Gordon talking us through all of this stuff about what it's like to be dead about the day he died about these new philosophical revelations that he's had after having died the back of my script has a really interesting quote about that this is a quote from the review of the new york times it says characters in rules plays negotiate the no man's land between the everyday and the mystical talking like goofs one minute and philosophers the next This play is as good an example of that as exists in Rule's work, I think. The the juxtaposition that occurs between these characters being just ridiculously funny, just (laughs) wildly weird— doing just things that make no sense or 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 seem just so over the top comedic. And then the next moment accessing some some kind of insightful odd commentary. I'm going to return again to that eulogy given by Gordon's mother in scene 2. It has just one of the my favorite favorite lines of the play. She is this is just the very beginning of her monologue. She says there is, thank God, a vaulted ceiling here. I'm relieved to find that there is stained glass and a sensation of height. Even though I'm not a religious woman, I'm glad there are still churches. Thank God that there are still people who build churches for the rest of us so that when someone dies or gets married, we have a place to... I could not put all of this and then the stage direction. She thinks the word grief, and she continues, in a low-ceilinged room. No, it requires height. I mean that's just beautiful, yeah. touching, subtle commentary. This idea that our grief and our joys require height in in the architecture of the room. How brilliant! How rule? Yeah, I think and
1: and the 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 dichotomy or the paradox of that makes you more receptive to those poignancies because you're just like sitting around listening to these people be kind of goofy or li- you're like okay tirade right at a funeral. I know what's happening, and you're watching it happen, and then all of a sudden it hits you out of the blue, and you're like, "Oh wow, I was I really wasn't expecting that." <laughs> Which is the the same thing in the uh, in the Gordon monologue later, uh, after he gets through his poignant bit about souls and stuff, he just describes that he was going to the the diner to get lobster bisque and how annoyed that he he is that he can't get lobster bisque.
0: Right, and he has he and Jean have another one of those really beautiful kind of touching, poignant, high peaks of the play later on in their scene. Basically, Gene has gone to Johannesburg to <laughs> r-
1: yep, retrieve you heard that right
0: payment for an organ that someone was going to legally sell, illegally sell <laughs> on the black market. It gets wild for a minute. And there's like this extended action fight sequence. Eventually, Gene is hit over the head with a pistol she awakes in <laughs> what the Gordon character describes as hell or the afterlife or something. And through this whole sequence of what he describes as basically when you die, you go to the person you loved the most at the moment you decided you love them. And apparently Jean loves Gordon the most. Interesting. And the moment she decided that was the cafe where he dies. So this is the third time we visited the death scene or setting or moment. And through the course of their conversation, Gene is trying to convince Gordon, at least one of the things, that he actually was loved by his mother. Their conversation turns around to the fact that he wasn't sure his mother ever really loved him. Well, Gene says, no, 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 no. Your mother is terribly grieving. She's so hurt. In fact, she says that she believes it's her job to mourn you until the day she dies. What I find so interesting about this moment of the play is it feels like another gene lie, doesn't it? It does, yeah. It feels like the same kind of crap she'd been making up for everybody else. No, 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 your mother really loved you. She told me she was going to mourn you till the day she dies. Mm Mm-hmm. But we know it's true. Right. She actually does say that earlier. (laughs) <laughs> and it, it's a striking line and I love that Rule brought it back because it's so striking. And it causes Gordon to, I guess, feel loved and in some sort of redemptive salvific moment he is transported away to, to see his mother and wait for her to die. Because now <laughs> she's the person that loves him the most or he loves her the most, however the rules of that afterlife play out.
1: Right. The rules of the afterlife are kind of a, a really good bit of comedy in there because cause it, it is a con- – first of all, it's a really cool uh, version of the afterlife. Like, what a cool way to think about it. Like, okay, so you go to the person that you love the most – and uh, it, it's kind of tragic because there's, ob- there's obviously some ways that that could cross and like someone didn't love you the most. He uh, Gordon lists like some people, the mother loves the kids the most, the kids love the dad the most, and the dad loves the dog the most. So it's all a mess. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it, basically, he says. Yeah,
0: I think he literally <laughs> says don't think
1: about it too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the result at the end is that this version of Gordon gets sucked away and Gene is left alone in the afterlife which maybe is the reason she comes back.
0: right yeah or or maybe she, I, I mean I don't know was she ever really dead right w- apparently she's been gone for months I'm not I'm not totally sure I, I understand yeah. the end of the play in, in how it works out in the real world if we right. are indeed in the real world <laughs> yeah we almost have to go back for a
1: second and and that that short journey that you made to get us to the afterlife included so many crazy things she she <laughs> finds out that Gordon is an organ an organ finder, mercenary? Se- yeah, he's like,
0: he describes himself as being sort of a connector of organs. He sure. He sells organs on the black market if you wanted to get crude about it, but that's not how he describes it. He says right. that he connects people who have money and need organs with people who don't have money and don't need their organs and <laughs> makes that transaction work.
1: Yeah, so she figures that out, then gets a call from someone who has a kidney that they will sell her and they're in south africa so there she has to fly to johannesburg she meets the woman there and yeah, it's just it's just a crazy series of events you you even said like there's a there's an extended fight scene and it's, In the middle of this play, again, it just kind of sucker punches you with a surprise storyline of now she's in Johannesburg following this cell phone, fighting a woman over a kidney.
0: And in, of course, classic rule style, moments like that exist throughout the play. This play is... Perhaps a mite more normal, quote unquote, than some of her other scripts. But it still includes these sequences of action that occupy so much of what you're experiencing that don't always reflect themselves so well in the script. I'm remembering uh, the clean house. There's these wild moments where characters will like have uh, like... um, alternate selves that go through things, right? Like at one point, don't they like revert to their childhood selves in sort of a step away from the scene moment? Yeah, I think so, Yeah, Moments of action exist like that in in Clean House. Of course, through Eurydice, you get things like, the father builds a house of string. It takes Mm -hmm. time to build a house of string. And that happens in this play as well. This extended fight scene being one, there's a cell phone ballet in the hell afterlife scene with Gordon. Yep, there's a, a really
1: kind of pretty like snowfall of, of embossed stationery. Um, at the end of Act 1, they're in a stationery shop where Dwight works and uh, they get rained on by different forms of stationery and like houses made of stationery. It's, it's like this this just barely unattainable stage direction. <laughs> just enough to like really pique the interest of a good props manager and set designer. <laughs> like, well, how yeah, do you make I mean, a shower it, it's,
0: of it's this? stage directions that are uh, man? I, I would hate to speak on behalf of her, but if I said intentionally vague, do you feel yeah. like I'm stepping on anybody's toes?
1: No, uh, maybe in intentionally vague, I would, <laughs> 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 yeah,
0: yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, all it says in the stage direction is a cell phone ballet. Right. Right. And and Rule gives you some she she provides some notes at the back about some ideas, but it's it's not prescriptive by any means. In fact, she says a number of times that, you know, you're gonna have to think through how you do this on in your house, in your world with your designers. Mm hmm. Yeah, and, and how do you create this, like,
1: magical moment? Because some of them would be really poignant, I think. I, and I think it does add to that 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 cell phone ballet moment. Uh, it's just so funny that we, we're saying these phrases, just such great phrases. The cell phone ballet um, <laughs> happens, uh, again, building on this afterlife theme of, oh, and you can also somehow hear cell phone signal in the afterlife, and then these people come on dancing ballet with a bunch of different cell phone conversations that, is, that are like passing through this, this afterlife world.
0: Right, and of course we have the Edward Hopper painting moments Ooh, throughout yeah. these scripts, right? There are a couple of different moments, especially moments in which Gene is alone on stage, where the stage direction is just something like an Edward Hopper painting. And if you look up, which of course I did in preparation for this podcast, he does a lot of these sort of... Um, i don't know if i'd call them i'm not i'm not an art expert but i would call them like setting portraits they're uh figures uh, typically one person but sometimes a small group that are in a larger context than just like a face and shoulders portrait they're in a scene and typically they're isolated or in the midst of some action uh the famous famous one would be that diner one where you, yeah. s- you lo- you're looking on from the outside of a uh, the street side of a diner window but there's a Uh, lots of different ones, women on trains, women looking out windows, all different kinds of things like that. These beautifully colored, layered, textured setting portraits, which is a a phrase I'm just making up. So be (laughs) warned. Don't try to Google setting portraits. That won't mean anything. Right.
1: But it's a great challenge for your designers to – this play is just full of – for the reader moments, and thus for the production team moments, um, where, where you, you need to suddenly think, okay, how are we going to make this, you know, right away when I looked it up and, and discovered that it was the diner uh, painting, I was like, oh, this creates such an evocative image in my mind. How would I do this with lighting design and, and uh, you know, minimal choreography? <laughs> How do how do we piece this together? And it's such like a it's a fun little mind game for your production team to, to try to create and whether or not the audience necessarily picks up exactly on it isn't isn't as important as putting in the artistic time to try to make it happen.
0: Right. So here's an example of that. This is the end of the scene in which Jean has visited the family for the first time for dinner. And she has offended the Gordon's mother due to the spoon thing, as we've discussed. Hermia, Gordon's wife, has gone off to comfort the mother. And now Dwight and Jean are alone. They're starting to sort of flirt back and forth, et cetera. Eventually, Dwight leaves to find some food because all they have is meat and Jean's a vegetarian. And so Dwight exits. Jean sits alone. She looks small and tired. An Edward Hopper painting for five seconds. Dwight enters with some caramel popcorn. That's what you get. Mm -hmm. I mean, what that means for you and your production, for you and your design team, how you're going to evoke this artistic sensibility that somehow Rule is trying to communicate is is a, a very creative task for you and your friends.
1: Yeah, you ask questions like, is there sound involved with that as well? This is a robust sound production. There's cell phones ringing and really... Uh, intentional timing for that. There are cell uh, uh, conversations from people on cell phones floating around. Lots uh, of musical
0: pieces. Yeah,
1: there's ballet happening. So <laughs> all of a sudden, there's music for that. And yeah, it is. It is a minefield full of of really great moments. A uh, minefield is, sounds sounds so dangerous. It is a, a mine full of really beautiful moments too. Mine. There we go. Analogies. There you go. You got the right
0: use of mine in that particular <laughs> one. <laughs> Not the explosion kind, the the diamond kind. The diamonds or the, the gold. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I I find so, it's so rule. And I man, this is the third play in a row with this kind of character. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that I'm going to sound ignorant by saying it, but I'm going to say it as a as a means <laughs> to discuss it. the The protagonist of this play, almost undoubtedly Jean, or at the very least, she's the main character. If she's not structurally the protagonist, Eurydice is Eurydice. The clean house is um, I think her name is Lane, maybe. Or we we talked about the yeah. fact that mm-hmm. it's actually probably another character. But it, but at first glance, there's a similar character of. Man, a lack of character? I mean, who (laughs) is Gene? Yeah. Right? All the other characters in this play are incredibly vibrant people. I, I mean, I think they are just incredibly alive human beings, clear personalities, clear desires. You can just you can visualize people that you know like these. But as with Lane, as with Eurydice, and now as with Gene, I just I don't have much of a sense of who this person is that is leading us through the story.
1: Certainly initially, right? I think I think uh we we meet Gene and you know there's lots of questions around her that that I don't think really are answered. Like, why really did you just jump in with this? Like, I kind of get, I get the, the, the explanation that somehow she fell in love with Gordon all of a sudden there and that led her along the way, but then why did you keep (laughs) <laughs> Why did you keep answering the phone? Why do you keep making? Why confabulations did you travel to
0: Johannesburg what? for yeah. somebody's kidney? Right. What do you do
1: on a on a non this kind of day? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, she tells us what she does, and th- this is one of the more interesting features of the character that is only briefly brought up. She works at the Holocaust Museum. Uh, mm-hmm. Assuming we can rely on that particular statement which in a play like this she could be lying potentially i'm not sure we have any real reason to believe that uh, other than the fact that she's lying constantly throughout the show (laughs) (laughs) but she says that she works at a holocaust museum and it does seem like at this moment she's revealing some true things about herself and she says that she she goes on to say one of the reasons why she's passionate about that work is that it's really important to remember this idea of memory then becomes a little bit of the conversation again like that quote from the new york times review this is one of the moments where the characters become philosophers for a little while instead of goofballs
1: right yeah yeah and and you you get you get those little clues about her life and and what's going on but then i I think we get the most about her life post death (laughs) You know, we we or or she she moves the most as a character or grows the most as a character after she comes back from uh, being knocked out. I think we discover or fainting or something. Uh, but after she meets Gordon in the afterlife, she uh, comes back and she just like she she meets Dwight right away and says, "We we need to we need to start loving each other more so that we can be in the afterlife together. Now that I've seen the afterlife, I want to spend the afterlife with you." And that seems to be a big jump for her because she's kind of like this this as we mentioned this
0: kind of angel
1: character who's floating around well, doing these I, altruistic things. Is it things. a
0: big jump for her? I just don't feel like I have enough information about Gene as a human being to decide whether this is a one-off event or whether she <laughs> is well-known for doing wild things like stealing a dead man's cell phone and answering <laughs> calls for him. I just don't know. Like you said, what's a, what's a different day for Gene like? I feel like I could answer that question for a lot of the other characters, right? Dwight being this sort of ridiculous. Rejected, less favored younger brother who has lived his whole life in Gordon's shadow and is now finding some meaning doing something in this relationship with Jean. The sort of overbearing mother who clearly favors one son, dramatic in in a in such a way, and now is, is f- really experiencing deep grief over her son as an expressing that in this kind of over the top way. The wife that knew her husband was cheating on her, who knew they were separated, who feels guilty over not bringing the marriage back together. This other woman who felt estranged, who was with Gordon for such a long time but knew she would never be his wife, he never said he loved her, and now only post-death does she learn that he said that, which isn't actually true. I mean, I feel like I have these really Pictures of who these other people are, and yet I don't know if I could answer whether Gene would pick up the dead man's cell phone on any other day of the week. I yeah. just don't know.
1: <laughs> it does have kind of like a, a parabolic or fable structure to it with these really defined characters, and then, again, I, I feel like I've used this analogy before, but like an every person in Gene who's just kind of like, and maybe, maybe that's a little bit wrong, though, too, because she isn't just like she's just like wandering through almost and, and noticing things and changing things and doing things. Uh, but, but, but some of the elements of this script remind me of a parable in that, in that like these choices are made, big sweeping choices are made. And it's just like, yes, I do this. Yes, I love you. And now we need to, we need to focus on spending the afterlife together with Jean at the end of the play.
0: (laughs) Mrs. Gottlieb, like, jumps into a fire so that she can be with Gordon. <laughs> yeah, man, that last scene is just hard to get a grip on. <laughs> yeah. Hard to pin down. Somehow, Jean has been gone for months? It's, I, Yeah. Weeks? Months? She's, she's been like, gone a long time. Yeah. Where or what? I have In no like idea. In like a luggage claim, maybe? Just no sense <laughs> of where she's been. We we learn that Dwight I guess finds her at the airport, or Uh she wakes up at the airport and eventually finds Dwight. Something like that. He takes her back to Gordon's house, Dwight's house, the mother's house, where this family lives, and they learn that Dwight's now like writing things on his you know in his publishing stationery business that the government's all uh, worried about. We all this we learn that the other woman actually was the stranger who stole the phone from uh, Jean in the extended fight sequence and now she's running the organ <laughs> black market business. Yep. All this stuff. And then eventually Gene says, well, look, he- here's what I learned from your son when I was in the afterlife is that he's waiting for you on the other side, Gordon's mother, Mrs., uh, gosh, help me, Jackson, Gottlieb? Gottlieb is how Gottlieb? I've been saying it, yeah. He's- Gottlieb, he's waiting for you in the afterlife. And so she throws herself on the barbecue. Right. <laughs> like, to go see him. Yep. To die. It's a suicide moment. Yep. Great, great, great stage direction there. Classically rule, <laughs> artistic, funny, quipping stage direction.
1: Yep. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of shocking and, and just for the reader because she specifically says you do not want to hear or see Mrs. Gottlieb destroying herself <laughs> on the fire. <laughs> so. Yep, and and then one of the, one of the best like after lines like Jean says she's she's throwing herself on the enormous fire in the back. Aren't you going to stop her? Dwight says, "No, they'll be happy together." <laughs> <laughs>
0: And then Gene uh, and Dwight kind of come together as Gene reflects on the fact that knowing that the person that she loved most is who she's going to see in the afterlife now. She wants that to be Dwight, so they're going to spend their lives together, falling more in love with each other. Uh, Dwight says he's going to take her to see the stationary business, and, and it ends with this kind of kissing, blackout, lovely, funny, final line um, – And man, is that an odd final scene. (laughs) It is. Yeah, I mean, You're right, it does end sort of parabolic, almost on a lesson. As Jean is describing to Dwight what she's learned, this is what she says. Oh, Dwight, I want to make sure we get on the same planet when we die. I don't want to end up with my garden or my dog all the time. Let's start loving each other right now, Dwight. Not a mediocre love, but the strongest love in the world. Absolutely requited so that we know and all the omniscient things of heaven know too. Let's love each other absolutely. That's like, again, like that
1: feels like a step in a direction for her. But again, we don't know where she's stepping
0: from. (laughs) Right. I, I totally agree. Jean is definitely a character on a journey. There's no doubt about that. And all of these rule brilliant uh, central figures, Lane, Eurydice, Gene, they are characters on a journey, and the journey is clear. I mean, even amidst all the wild, crazy things that happen in rule plays, in a play like Dead Man's Cell Phone, what is happening around Gene and to Gene is perfectly crystal clear. And that's what helps you keep hold amidst all of these beautiful, poetic, wild images that occupy the center of the rule style, right? Is that you know what's happening. I don't, I don't think there are very few... There's very few moments in Rules Play where you're like, what the heck is going on? Right, Even the weird images make sense in the context of the story. Story is still the center. But... The journey that these women are on starts somewhere that I'm not always very clear on who they were at the start of the journey. So it's a little hard to know how they've changed to the end, right? So like you asked, it's probably not an everyday occurrence that she falls in love and learns a big lesson about uh, unrequited – or I'm sorry, about requited absolute love for a partner. It's probably not every day that she learns that. But I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, to, to to add to the descriptors of of the journey, like we we're, we're we're watching it, we know what's going on, and we're also like really invested in her as well. I think in all three of those characters, we want to know what happens, despite somehow despite the fact that we don't know where they started from, that we just meet these people on a uh, we, that we meet Jean on a clear blue day when she's in a diner, had the last bowl of lobster bisque and <laughs> and met a guy who was dead. Despite that, that we know nothing about her prior to this and we don't find out much uh, besides where she works in this play, I'm really invested in figuring out what happens to her as a result of all this. Like, we're, we're on the ride and we're, we're really interested to see where it ends up.
0: And, and Rula's brilliantly written so many elements of that because we're, we're invested in the mystery. Who was Gordon. All these things she's got to yeah. lie about to pretend to be somebody that Gordon knew. The mysteries pile up, and we're so interested in where it's going. And we're yeah. so interested in what's going to happen between Gene and Dwight. And we're so interested in this unusual situation of having a phone and being dedicated to answering the phone and delivering the news of death to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Such, such, like, and and you, you kind of imagine yourself in that role, too.
1: Like, what would happen? What well, what would happen if I if I had someone else's phone and answered all the calls? Like I feel like this <laughs> this whole this whole play is like om, almost just that. Like it's you're sitting you're sitting around and you're thinking, what would happen if I got to be in on someone else's story, someone else's uh private life? My my script has the has a quote from Charles Dickens, and I'm not going to read the whole quote, but to sum it up. It's He talks about walking into a city and looking at a stand of apartments and just imagining all the different little lives that are going on in each of those apartments. Hundreds of lives in one building when he enters a city. And he thinks about that. And what would it be like to be able to interact with that? And that's that's what Gene gets to do. That's what we as the audience kind of get to do as well is imagine what would happen if you just peeked your head into one sphere other than your own And 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 the commentary
0: that's made about that, because I totally agree that that commentary is being formed around the play. The commentary that Rule makes about that experience I think is genius, is is beautifully insightful. Because what does she say? She says, if you are – if by some wild, unusual circumstance, finding a dead man's cell phone, you are (laughs) shoved into someone else's life into the intimate, hard moments of someone else's life. I think what rule answers, what what happens, is that you will be unable to remain a passive observer. The people's lives around us that are that they're, they're living by themselves, if you poke your head in a little bit, you're going to be drawn into their stories because Jean is unable to be a passive observer. She can't just keep the cell phone, provide her comfort where she can and move on with her life. She ends up right in the middle of everything, in the middle of what Gordon left behind, in the middle of healing their relationships with each other, in the middle of falling in love with the brother. The commentary is not just that these stories are interesting the people around you have interesting lives well yeah lots of people say that the rule takes that one step further and says the people around you have so interesting lives that if you take a moment you will be drawn into them to participation mm-hmm. in them
1: almost to the expense of your own life as well there's there's a great scene where you kind of see the consequence of it which is Dwight and Gene have just finished making love to each other and Gene had the, the phone rings And Dwight says, don't answer the phone. Don't answer the phone. Just stay with me. And Jean doesn't answer the first one, but then it rings again, and she, like, has to answer the phone. The story draws you in, both both in a good way and in sometimes in a a negative way for your own story.
0: Yeah. This has just always been among my favorite rule plays for this just beautifully layered, subtle storytelling about – Lives, about grief, about technology, all weaved together. i just I just think it's so, so great. Uh, as I said, somebody around me in this community has already done it. So as long as I'm here, I probably will not be doing this script, which is unfortunate because I'd love love <laughs> love to direct it
1: yeah. and and and, like we said at the beginning, it is such a good play for small-town small, small town theaters and, and large theaters to do. The characters are so rich, you can dig into them, you get to play some really fun lines, and uh, you get to have a lot of fun as a production team. So, if you do this play, we definitely want to hear about it. <laughs> because it is such a good, it's such a great play, and so many exciting stories can develop out of it. So, if you do it, have done it, want to do it, just want to talk about it with someone, find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, and... And tell us about it. We would love to continue the conversation with you. We also have a Gmail, no script. Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, you can find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about this play with you.
0: Absolutely. If you've liked this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, please share them. Tell the other people about what you're listening to, the community that you're involved in, the stories that we're talking about. Tell people about them. Share them on your social media. That's a huge thing that you can do to support the show. You can find the podcast on Podbeam, where we're hosted on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. One of the best ways to find us is every Monday we post a link to the new episode on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
1: Yeah, so check out those sites. We'll
0: see you over there. And until we do, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script, the podcast. See ya. Bye.